Joe Biden's awesome first year. To win an exhausted nation's admiration, all Joe Biden had to do was nothing. Instead, he's burning future votes like kindling. The Gallup agency released a picture of the comet that is the Joe Biden presidency on its first anniversary. The pollsters put the numbers in context. Both the nine-point Democratic advantage in the first quarter and the five-point Republican edge in the fourth quarter are among the largest Gallup is measured for each party in any quarter since it began regularly measuring party identification and leaning in 1991. How great was life for Joe Biden a year ago? MSNBC's John Heileman compared him to Lincoln. PBS White House correspondent Yamiche Alcindor said the return of the Democrats felt like we are being rescued from the craziness, and now here are the superheroes to come and save us all. Rachel Maddow went through half a box of Kleenex in joy. Even Chris Wallace of Fox said Biden's half-coherent inauguration speech was the best inaugural address I ever heard. JFK's iconic, Ask Not, included. Biden looks bad. During the campaign, when he was challenging strangers to push-up contests and doing sternum pokes in crowds while nervous aides bit their lips, you could make the argument that he was merely in steep mental decline, which was okay. Against Trump, the standard of technically alive worked for a lot of voters. Biden now looks like a man deep into the peeing on houseplants stage, and every appearance is an adventure. He might say, even Dr. King's assassination did not have the worldwide impact that George Floyd's death did, or repeat his evolving fantasy about getting arrested with Nelson Mandela, who, according to the president, also later came to Washington to say, you got arrested trying to see me, or let it slip that aides are shielding him from all news, a logical takeaway from his, let's go Brandon, I agree, Christmas moment. Or he might just collapse into syllable piles before casting around in fright. It's reached the point where MSNBC is permitting guests like Donnie Deutsch to say things like, he seems old. In a panic, party spokestool Paul Begala went on the network this week to deliver a real-life version of the old Mel Brooks, the peasants are revolting joke, saying the problem for the Democrats is not that they have bad leaders, they have bad followers. Biden has always been an easy punchline. A tumescent yeller with hair plugs is a magnet for comics. The only reason he didn't make more stand-up careers is that Barack Obama wisely dispatched him to eight years of meetings about faraway disease outbreaks. When one person sneezes, it goes everywhere through the aircraft, he declared about H1N1, after consulting with John Brennan in the last crisis he would be allowed to comment on for a while, or to battle zones like Afghanistan, where he had more imaginary experiences, dreaming up what the Washington Post would later call a moving but false war story about pinning a medal on a soldier, or to the always effective trips to discuss bilateral and regional issues across Africa. One can imagine a pajama-clad Obama at bedtime, greedily demanding the freshest tape of Biden, trying to pronounce names like Mwai Kibaki or Raylo Odinga. As we're now learning, the Biden World Tour was a win-win for everyone, since it allowed the future president to cross paths with all sorts of foreigners of means with whom his wayward pistol-packing son could later share business ideas. When Biden returned to electoral politics, he found his former boss's success had changed the game. Getting elected as a Democrat had once been simple. You attended Jefferson Jackson dinners, talked about being pro-choice at suburban town halls, and stayed in the game with silent majority voters by muttering about personal responsibility 
or executing the occasional mentally ill black person. In Biden's case, he bragged about the crime bill and demanded that law enforcement officials find a rationale to bulldoze raves in crack houses. Obama's 2008 election convinced party apparatchiks this old triangulation strategy was dead. Here's how current Biden advisor Neera Tondon's Center for American Progress summed things up in 2010. Heavily Democratic minority voters, 80% for Obama, increased their share of votes in U.S. presidential elections by 11 percentage points between 1988 and 2008, while the share of increasingly Democratic white college graduate voters rose four points. But the share of white working class, not college-educated voters, who have remained conservative in their orientation, has plummeted by 15 points. Those exciting numbers were what convinced the pantsuit Buchanan version of Hillary Clinton I covered in 2008 to transform into woke Hillary eight years later. The new act didn't work, but the party Brahmins still went into 2020 convinced the winning formula depended on replicating Obama's map, a strategy based on youth and minority turnout. Joe Biden, therefore, had to make the same transformation, and in 2019-2020, we saw regular examples of a Beltway AIDS idea of youth appeal expressed in New Joe's prepared statements. For instance, Mr. Find a Rationale decided he was shocked his pal Bernie Sanders would accept an endorsement from a man, Joe Rogan, who said of MMA fighter Fallon Fox, if you had a dick at one point in time, you also have all the bone structure that comes with having a dick. And she wants to be able to fight women in MMA? I say no fucking way. New Biden wasn't having this. Transgender equality is the civil rights issue of our time, he tweeted. There is no room for compromise when it comes to basic human rights. Here's Joe Biden shaking Henry Kissinger's hand in 2016. Don't think I'm posting it out of spite. The real reason is there's no available picture of that other time Biden toasted Kissinger in Munich. The irony was the closest relative to Obama's 2008 candidacy that year was Sanders. Remember Obama ran as an anti-war populist the first time. But since delivering actual change was alien to the party's nature, they spent two years of a primary season searching for the appearance of it instead. Party hacks first tried to push Kamala Harris on reporters. Then it was Kennedy-esque Beto O'Rourke, whose shtick was looking really sad about immigration. Then it was Mayor Pete. Perfect, except for the whole no black supporters thing. Then Kamala again, in a preview of the bad followers problem, voters stubbornly refused to respond to her, despite multiple intense marketing campaigns. Finally, in a surrender of sorts, there was a late mad dash to back hilarious Amy Klobuchar, who would at least be a first something. The New York Times hedged its bets there, endorsing both Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren, saying, may the best woman win. The irony, of course, is the party ended by making the panic move we should have seen coming all along, returning to Obama's 2008 idea of just trotting out Joe Biden. Biden did his job and got elected, and to be charitable, he hasn't been a total disaster. He managed to pull out of Afghanistan at least a decade late, but still. On the other hand, building a party whose electoral strategy relies on minority votes while being totally cut off from the working class where a lot of those voters live has put the party in a suicide pattern. The younger Biden was a feisty, unscrupulous hawk who affected to be a champion of the little guy while selling them out to the credit industry. 
The current version is an enfeebled old man who's let every half-cocked pseudo-intellectual in Washington occupy his White House, their dumbass fixations achieving what was previously thought to be impossible, driving loyal minority voters in droves into the arms of Donald Trump, instantly rendering them bad followers, of course. Democrats are now in their second straight year of losing significant ground with all minority groups. There are major defections among Asian and Hispanic voters, and even Trump's six-point gain among black men last year is beginning to look like a thing. Biden's approval rating with black voters has dropped from 78% to 57%. It's so bad Tucker Carlson looked a threat to die of amusement this week, cackling that Biden's base has been whittled to two constituencies, anxious upper-income women with multiple college degrees and barren personal lives, and members of the national news media, with the media already starting to run for the exits. Another Carlson segment gleefully noting that NPR's audience was now wider than Fox's, despite years of, your bookshelf may be part of the problem, and the stories marginalized writers tell when they don't center trauma, type features cut closer to home. NPR, despite its impressive commitment to self-flagellation as core editorial policy, has become a machine for repelling working class and non-white audiences, in much the same way Biden Democrats are starting to drive away the party's most faithful supporters. It's tempting to blame demographic defections on culture war stupidity, like the insistent use of loathed words like Latinx, but that's just a symptom of the real problem. Democrats under Biden have become the party of the nomenclatura. Their base is the slice of hyper-educated, jargon-spouting bureaucrats whose ranks are growing thanks to their skill at siphoning resources to themselves before they have a chance to reach a wider base of regular people. These new commissars are the most hated people in the country, and they're the Democrats' main constituency. Every species of viper and corporate parasite is swimming in riches now, from tax-evading private equity titans to the oil and gas CEOs who are right now gouging everyone, to old pals in the banking sector. Goldman's just announced special 1% bonus, celebrating last year's record $27 billion profit was a nice touch. All thriving but lionized so long as they mask appropriately and genuflect to norms. Meanwhile, the party increasingly demonizes every species of complaining underclass person as a right-wing enemy, even the minorities. Biden officials initially seemed sure the formula for keeping black or Hispanic voters involved deploying the most leaden possible hyperbole. Think Biden's makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle line, or Harris comparing border agents to slaveholders, signing one executive order after another about the historical oppression of each group, including an ambitious whole-of-government equity agenda on day one, and pushing legislation like the voter rights bill that would provide ample opportunities for contrasts with the hated Republicans on race issues. There was zero understanding that messaging about systemic barriers might contrast with how the huge influx of Asian, Hispanic, and African immigrants viewed the American experience, bafflement that minority voters apparently didn't all see the voting rights bill as an existential necessity, and resistance to even considering the complaints of, say, Hispanic immigrants who were more adversely affected by lockdowns than upscale Zoomer intellectuals, whose latest fetish, as Freddie DeBoer's recent column humorously notes, is denouncing calls to return to work as eugenics that privilege a deeply violent normalcy. 
Asian Americans got their new executive order and even some sexy new taxonomy. Who wouldn't be stoked to be one of the AA and NHPI? But they spent much of the last year being told their anger over lowered academic standards, in particular, was right-wing myth. How could these voters not know the gifted and talented programs they care about are also a modern-day eugenics project, as one NYU researcher put it? But at least everyone got an official State Department tweet on International Pronouns Day. Of course, the issue that has cost Biden the most is the pandemic. The best word for his COVID policy is weird. As a candidate, he blasted Trump for the lie that every American who wanted a test could get one. Then, for no clear reason, waited a year to start shipping free tests to people. There were similar delays with releasing 400 million N95 masks from federal stockpiles, despite the administration's ostentatious messaging about mask use, even wearing them alone or outside in all vax groups. To be fair, Biden has to be as confused as the rest of us as to what is supposed to be correct policy. When his CDC reduced its isolation recommendation from 10 days to 5, health experts and comics alike shrieked with outrage. One tweeter compared the idea to reopening Jurassic Park. When his education secretary said, The goal is to keep our children in school, MSNBC responded with an editorial calling the sentiment, you guessed it, eugenics. Biden is too old to deal with these lunatics and too out of touch to see, for instance, the politics of school closures as they might look to people who can't afford nannies or private schools. Surrounded by panic addicts, he hasn't been able to articulate a COVID plan that doesn't come off as cultist class shaming. The main problem, though, is his own infirmity has added to the impression that America's COVID-19 policy is a Nosferatu ghost ship floating to nowhere, which heightens everyone's fear level. The sad thing is, the demographic picture CAP quoted in 2010 was real. If Democrats had just figured a way to deliver a few things for ordinary people over the years, they would never have lost again. I'm giving the party more credit than it deserves for actually wanting to remain in power. But if that were its real goal, the formula was obvious. Single-payer healthcare, bulk negotiation of drug prices, antitrust action against too big to fail banks, or Silicon Valley's surveillance monopolists, really anything that demonstrates a willingness to prioritize voters over the takeover artists and CEOs who fund the party would have given them enduring credibility. Do that while retaining at least a sliver of the reputation for fighting for civil rights won in the 60s, and how can you lose, ever? The numbers say you can't, and it's early still, but they wouldn't be the first aristocrats to wait too long to peek out of the bubble. Thank you for listening to the audio version of this article. For more, visit taibi.substack.com.